Please state your name for the record. I am Greg Robbins. I'm Brent Simmons. And I'm Chris Parrish, and you're listening to The Record. The Record brings you the stories you should know about the Apple development community. This is Season 1, Seattle Before the iPhone. Today we are recording at the offices of the Omni Group in Seattle. Our guest is Greg Robbins. Greg is an engineer at Google, former developer at Real Networks, and one half of the now famous duo that built Graphing Calculator for the classic Mac OS. Greg, it's great to have you here today. Thank you, Chris. Brett. Thanks for coming. We're not going to talk to you about Graphic Calculator, mainly because uh, we just don't care. Uh, yeah, everyone's heard enough <laughs> about that We can't compete thing. with Ira Glass, right? Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> totally. We'll have some stuff in the show notes. So if there's anybody out there who hasn't like, been through this story before, um, you, you, can, you can read all about it. Uh, instead, let's talk about Drag Manager translucency because I, this came out, I think it was 7.5.3. I think I remember oh, it's the great I, that you can remember that. Because I was so impressed with this at the time. Um, our listeners may not have been Mac users at the time, uh, but the thing was suddenly when you dragged an icon on the desktop, you were dragging like a translucent version of the icon instead of just a, an outline. Everything used to just be outlines. Greg, how did this happen? What a, what a great feature. I mean, you know, listen to me. I loved it. It's like, <laughs> it's like oh, my goodness. It changed everything. I was it, such it, a fan. It seemed like it was going to be inevitable, but... Uh Back when the Drag Manager first uh, was introduced to the Mac operating system, it used the traditional method of dragging everything with dotted outlines, which was computationally much easier than mm -hmm. actually rendering translucent images, merging images. Um, towards the end of the months when Ron and I were working on the graphing calculator, I had some free evenings. And so I spent the nights um, just playing around with the Drag Manager hooks that Apple made available to mm -hmm. see if I could change the dotted outline drags into translucency. And Just because it seemed like it would be fun. It, it seemed like it, cool. it, it, yeah. it, it seemed inevitable. Yeah. I mean, dragging dotted outlines going way back when, I mean, it, it wasn't unnatural, mm -hmm. but it, it certainly wasn't where computers ought to be. One thing right. we, we discovered with the graphing calculator was the old paradigms of how to represent user interface had changed dramatically once we had, uh, once we had faster machines. It's hard to remember in hindsight uh, because it was so long ago and we're so accustomed to how things are rendered now. But it was really hard to push pixels around the screen back then. Right. Back, right. Back, back and I think, 90s. you know, for some of our younger listeners, if I recall, we didn't have alpha channels and uh, we didn't have anything like quartz, right? So you're using probably copy bits. and uh, Right. You, you couldn't even assume you could render all colors. Often displays mm. were black and white or had 8-bit colors. Right. So they had color tables, so there right. were very limited options on what you could draw. Do I remember right that the translucency didn't work on 68K computers? It required PowerPC. Um, it was actually developed on 68K. I don't remember if it ever shipped on 68K. Mm, okay. uh, it, it, I mean, the translucency itself boiled down to using the standard copying method, uh, copying function in the operating system, copy bits, mm. combined with um, a whole lot of setup to make sure that copying could actually succeed. So, for example, if you had an 8-bit color table without a good representation of colors to, to actually draw what you were trying to drag, mm -hmm. or if you didn't have enough memory, because uh, a one-megabyte allocation was huge back then. Oh, right. Sure. And it could take that much memory to render and merge the images that were being dragged. Mm. So after a whole lot of careful setup to make sure the, the dragon could actually work, then it would just use the standard system copy bits to, to combine the uh, on- and off-screen images and then blip those on screen. Uh, I you spent uh, a week of evenings... Um, writing the code to actually make this happen, try to do it as safely and 
transparently as possible to the user because I couldn't afford uh, couldn't afford to have the machine hesitate when you start dragging something. Yeah, right. Had to had to work perfectly or uh, not right. at all, right? Right. And back then, if you allocated a megabyte of memory, that could you know th that could hit VM or at least take a while to mm -hmm. to complete. And so there, there was a lot, a lot of being careful, a lot more than there was graphics hard work there. Huh. So I, I spent. Uh, I spent the time developing that. It seemed to work fine. It was the end of the calendar year. Ron and I were waiting for the new PowerPC machines to be released. Mm -hmm. So we were sort of afraid to touch the graphing calculator code base. We knew any serious bug in the calculator meant Apple might throw it off the hard drives. Right. Uh, so I took my side project. I showed it to a manager who had some leftover year-end budget. And he said, fine, I'll take it. <laughs> so the manager of Apple's UI group at the time took his, you know, some of his remaining budget and paid me more for... Um, a week's worth of work on translucent dragging that I made for most of the year's work on the graphing calculator. Of course. Uh, but it wasn't slated for a release. So it sat around Apple's headquarters for literally years. The code just mm. sat unused. Wow. Um, there was no corporate mandate to push out that particular feature. Mm -hmm. And so eventually it seemed to be forgotten. Uh, later in 1995, um, I was afraid that other operating systems would end up with something similar before the Mac. Mm -hmm. um, Next had something along those lines even earlier, but Next never quite had the traction of... Right, uh, nobody knew. You know, yeah. Next could do anything and no one would know. Right. Except uh, a few people here so at Omni. <laughs> eventually I was fed up with uh, knowing Apple had this feature sitting unused and not shipping in the operating system. So I talked uh, a friend of mine who um, was an engineer responsible for Apple's drag manager mm -hmm. into actually slipping the code into the drag manager mm -hmm. for a minor system update. And then I had to talk to my friends who worked on the Finder team into letting me hack the Finder. Um, it actually required inserting uh, assembly language and hexadecimal into the Finder's C++ code base to patch the operating system so that the Finder, which used much older drag manager APIs, would also call through to the newer translucency uh -huh. API. And finally, every, all the pieces fell into place. Um, back then, people at Apple, engineers at Apple, were a bit more adventuresome and a lot less fearful that there would be blowback from what they did. Yeah, right. uh, so it went out in a, in a system update release, and the only other features of the system update were released were really just bug fixes. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the manager of the company responsible for the system update first learned that translucency was in the system update when he started seeing the feedback from the testers outside, <laughs> of, uh, outside of his own group. Uh -huh. uh, uh, and the external developers who were, who were saying, this is great, they love seeing the translucent dragging finally in the system. Uh, you know, something new and sort of exciting and it felt modern. And he was less than thrilled to find out that the one feature he was getting a lot of positive feedback about was one he wasn't even aware mm -hmm. was in the update release. <laughs> but it stayed in, and it shipped, uh, and it, it became sort of a, one, one of the little victories that you get if you manage to, to work around the rules of a corporate behemoth right. um, and put out something that people actually like and appreciate. So you were never actually an Apple employee, but a but a contractor, right? Is that how that worked? Okay. Uh, so you managed to avoid, hopefully at least, some of the kind of typical corporate politics and everything by yeah by uh, taking that route. I mean, projects came and went. I started as uh, a contractor doing developer support at Apple. Later, I hopped around various system software projects, sometimes developing OS pieces and uh, sometimes doing debugging, tracking down issues mm -hmm. on newer system releases. Uh, 
because I was a contractor, I felt I had the freedom to say no, mm. which is something that employees don't typically have. So yeah, when right, I was asked, right, would yeah. you mind working, you know, for a few months on, you know, the help manager, I said, no, that's not something I really yeah. wanted to work on. Yeah, I don't care. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and th this was at a time when Apple stock wasn't going up, so I certainly wasn't losing Apple oh, yeah, in, right, in any sure. compensation yeah. sense there. So were there managers that tried to convert you to uh, full-time during? Uh... Uh, mostly no, because when I was actually working for them as a contractor, they were just dissatisfied. Right. Um, I did at one point receive a job offer to work uh, on the, in the Newton's developer support group. And then when I saw what the salary offer was and compared it to what I made as, a, <laughs> as an hourly rate as a yeah, contractor, right. it was just not even competitive. Mm -hmm. uh, there, you know, as a contractor, I missed out on certain benefits. On the other hand, uh, you know, I went to the meetings I wanted to go to. I didn't care that I was missing some of the corporate meetings that were for employees only. Yeah, right. When they had the company going to a movie for employees only, mm -hmm. I just pretended I was an employee. And right, all, right, all my exactly. friends who were, yeah. were happy to open the door for me. Mm -hmm. yeah. So um, maybe rewind a little bit. How did you end up working on a Mac in the first place and, uh, and at Apple? Was the Mac your first like professional development platform? Or? Uh, so I grew up um, loving computers since long before there were home computers. Right. Uh, I learned programming on uh, teletypes at Berkeley's Lawrence Hall of Science um, when I was a little kid. And yeah. eventually, home computers started coming out, and I identified the Apple II as the one I wanted to own. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I worked various jobs to save up money, and my parents said they'd cover 50% of the cost if I put in the other half for a computer. Nice. And eventually, I was able to buy an Apple II in uh, 1990. 77, 78 maybe? Uh, it was right? probably 79. 79. I mean, the Apple II Plus right. had been announced yeah. but wasn't out yet, so this yeah, was the okay. original two. Um, and uh, so, I mean, the, the dream I had of a kid was actually having a teletype connected over phone lines to a mainframe somewhere else. And oh, sure. to actually have a home computer right. sitting in right. my bedroom that I could use any hour of the day meant yeah. I was up almost every night till 2 or 3 a.m. Right. Yep. Right. Uh, chunking around, programming, uh, learning, you know, basic uh, as it offered first, later assembly language on mm -hmm. it. Um, I, a friend of mine, uh, a very smart guy named Ted Cohn, had written a debugger for the Apple II called Bugbiter and had it published through uh, a local publisher in Berkeley. Uh, he introduced me to his publisher, and they effectively signed me up to write educational software program for them. Oh, wow. Oh, so cool. I wrote uh, a concentration-type educational game. Offering system where teachers or parents could put in things to be matched up. I see. Uh, yeah. And it ended up uh, selling pretty well. Um, I had negotiated a royalty for it rather than a fixed rate. Mm, so nice. for years afterwards, I had a pretty good income for a high school and then a college student. Wow. No, oh, that's fantastic. I was a busboy then. I'm happy. <laughs> I was a programmer, but I didn't have a software title yet. So you were a success in business right off the bat. That's awesome. Um, I, I read up on, you know, how to write a software contract. There were e Even back in the late 70s, there were books from Nolo Press mm, okay. on oh, software yeah. contracts and copyrights and so forth. And it wasn't that hard to become familiar with, you know, what these things ought to be. Right. Yeah, right. Um, and the company I dealt with was actually sort of honest and upfront with me. When, when you're, you know, writing a contract with a corporate entity, especially if you're an individual who's not represented by a lawyer, there's always sort of a fear. Right. Yeah. But um, the guys who... who ran this little publishing house where, where, you know, 
very stand up. Yeah, and cool. they made a real effort to sell the software, and they yeah. gave me the royalty we agreed on. And yeah, where did they did they sell the software directly, or was it like uh, you know shrink wrapped in it, stores? Or it was shrink wrapped. They uh, it was called Master Match. They printed a uh, uh, a booklet to wrap around the diskette, and it mm-hmm. had a slide in um, cardboard container that mm-hmm. got hung up in stores. I guess. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, yeah, I probably I mean, saw it. I would hang out right? at Computer Land or whatever. You go to like Computer Land or some yeah, store like that, and, like, and there'd be something. Do I want that or the Beagles Brothers thing? Yeah. Or, yeah. Sometimes yeah. there'd be things in Ziploc baggies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but th- yeah, but this was something that parents yeah. or teachers might buy. Kids yeah, would sure. never buy this from Yeah, themselves. so right. yeah, was, yeah, that's interesting. It. I wonder if they like you know sold directly to schools or anything. Um, yeah. It was an integer basic language uh, oh, on the that. Apple II, and there was a compiler called the Galfo Systems Integer Basic Compiler. Um, which, I should remember that, yeah. Uh, which was, you know, an early form of writing in a high-level language and having it be compiled yep. down to something yeah, that's yeah. fast enough to seem like assembly. Right. Language. Yeah. Those were some days. You had all of 40 columns and all uppercase characters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, the the resolution of the graphics then is is, is uh, hard to fathom these days. It, yeah. it, it's far less resolution for a full screen back then than we have on a phone screen. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Jeez. Yeah. yeah, not even um, close. Yeah. I remember saving my allowance for an 80-column card right? And, uh, lowercase letters. Or extra RAM. That was the big extra thing I remember RAM, adding yeah. was 16K of RAM. And it took me I wanted the second to floppy, but I never got that far. Yeah. No, no I, I think that I would use my 16K of RAM extra as a RAM disk sometimes yeah. to hold like really small bits of software. I think I had a BBS software that would fit in that. Mm-hmm. And then I would uh, use the, the disk for the storage for the rest of it. But uh, Yeah. It was fun hacking into those. Oh, you know, one of the things I loved the most about the Apple II in that era was, um, if you remember, I, th- I think at least I had a 2 Plus was my first one. And I'm not sure if the 2 also had this, but uh, it had a technical manual. And in the back of it was a giant fold-out schematic yes. of the oh, entire yeah. circuit right. board for the computer. I was just fascinated. I think that's probably what sent me down the road of getting an EE degree, mm-hmm. was looking at that and going, I have no idea what any of this means. This is yeah. amazing. This makes the computer work. How does this happen? Yeah. Back then, Apple's computers opened up and had slots, and they yeah. didn't feel like they were pristine, perfect seal right, off. Right, sure. In fact, so, uh, It was I, still close to the, the, the homebrew computer era. Right. So, yeah, yeah. I repaired mine with tinfoil once after breaking a, a pin off of a chip oh. and, and shoved it down in the slot. I used to put tinfoil on something to relu- reduce RF, because yeah. it would make our TVs Oh, yeah, yeah, I could see that, yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there was a lot more of that. Uh, well, and if you could afford a computer, you had to keep it running, right? I mean, it's like, you know, it wasn't a small endeavor to get a second computer. I, yeah, I did a right. lot to keep my Apple II Plus running for many, many years. Yeah. Right. Well, you, how much memory did your computer start with? Uh, it was 48K when it came new. And then I think, I don't know if I ever got that one above 64K. I feel like I added 16K and that was it. And I'd moved on to a 2GS after that. Okay. That got bigger and better, but. Yeah. No, they didn't even have lowercase. No, I know. That was great. Yeah. Mine did. Yeah. 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 That was just hilarious. There were some mods. I remember you could get some aftermarket mods for the for the 2 and 2 Plus that would yeah. give you some sort of hacky lowercase thing. But I never did do that. I was like, ah, who needs that? I wasn't really writing I did. I was, I was either programming or writing. Yeah. And a lot, you know, with writing, it's really yeah, nice it's been important. Yeah, see, letters. I didn't understand that. Yeah. I was just programming. I didn't yeah. know about that writing thing. Even back then, though, um, there were... The, the, the folks who had Apple IIs tended to be a little different than people who had non-Apple machines. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. There was a little more focus on usability, mm-hmm. on sort of appropriateness for consumers in the software. Yeah. yeah. 
there was some interesting and clever exploration. I mean, the Beagle Brothers is the first thing that comes to mind, right? Like right. those guys were so clever and fun. It was, you know, um, the way that they presented their software and just the, the hacks that they did and things like that was very interesting. I thought. Yeah. Uh, and there was a good carryover from the Apple II days into the Mac days. A lot of the early yeah. Mac developers were people who yeah. had cut their teeth on the Apple II. Yeah, oh, yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, well, I, this is one of the rare rooms that you walk into where everybody has 6502 assembler experience. Right, exactly. Yeah. That was the <laughs> only way. I mean. But yeah. we had to, right? To, to, yeah, to I wanted to write games, things. and that yeah. wasn't happening in BASIC after a while. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? And I didn't have a compiler of any sort. So yeah. I was hacking in the monitor there. Uh, Hexadecimal. He's <laughs> translating from my graph paper, right? That was took yeah. some wherewithal, determination uh, to do that. F so before the iPhone, the people who had to do uh, software for phones um, back in the you know, uh, shortly after two thousand, mm -hmm. people who were writing games for phones and so forth, we're, we're dealing again with the you know how much software can we fit right. into thirty two k? Yeah, yeah, exactly, uh, yeah. Yeah, I guess even game console developers have had years of that same sort of vibe going on where it's like we've got this fixed machine that isn't necessarily the most powerful by the standards of the day, but we're trying to make something amazing happen on it. Mm -hmm. Working within those confines is interesting always, I think. It is. Well, yeah, when the iPhone first came out, I felt like I was writing for a Mac in yeah. 1992. Yeah. That was nice, wasn't you know? it? Yeah. Yeah, that it was, it was. I got to care about memory. Feeling. Wow. Now, now <laughs> it's progressed so far already. Already, like, right? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, you, you start a new iPhone project and it has the memory warning stubbed out in your view controller, yeah, and right. you're just like, delete that because I'm probably not going to ever have to mess with that. Yeah. <laughs> Chris and I would like to thank Squarespace for sponsoring this episode of The Record. Squarespace is uh, a website making service. It's a website where you go to make websites. And you've probably heard about it because they've advertised on a number of podcasts. And if you're like me, you're kind of a podcast addict. And you know that Squarespace has been uh, a remarkably great supporter of the podcasting community. But that's not the only cool thing about them. What's really cool about them is, is their service. It's wonderful. You go there, sign up, uh, get started, make a website. It's all drag and drop. And no matter what you do, you can't help but make a beautiful website. Uh, their, their designs are, are stellar utterly fantastic. And not only are their designs beautiful, but they're also responsive. So they, they work right out of the box on, uh, on iPhones and iPads and other sizes and types of devices. If you've ever done websites, responsive design yourself by hand with CSS media queries and all that, you know that it can be difficult and it gets complicated. And there are issues with scaling images and all these kinds of things. Well, Squarespace takes care of all that for you. And even though they make this so easy, you would think, well, they wouldn't even necessarily have to have a, a great support team, but they do. And in fact, their support team is available 24 by seven. So if you're like me, sometimes you're working outside of the hours when people tend to work, right? It might be after dinner, 10 o'clock at night or, or midnight or even later, you're hacking on your website. Well, their support team is right there, ready to help you. Uh, that is, that's a fantastic thing. I really appreciate it. Another thing you may not know, and it's kind of maybe their best kept secret, is that you can really get under the hood. Um, some people really like to do that. Squarespace makes it so easy you never have to, right? But if you're a developer, you know, there may be some stuff you want to do. Well, if you go to developers.squarespace.com, 
uh, you can find all kinds of uh, goodies for developers. There's, there, there's just about nothing you can't, you can't change. And maybe in fact nothing that you can't change uh, or, or tweak or, or develop using their platform. Really, really cool. So they've given our listeners uh, an, a promo code, and that is the record, all one word, uppercase, lowercase, doesn't matter. So go to squarespace.com slash the record, and you get 10% off. As I say, it's so easy. It's so beautiful. And, and the normal price is only, only $8 a month. It's so inexpensive. Uh, you can host custom domain names there and, and everything. Just a really, really cool service. And I talked to those guys on their phones. Their business is doing so well. And you know why? Because they're making something really excellent. So check it out, squarespace.com, the record. And if you're a developer, you might want to take a look at developers.squarespace.com. You might see some pretty cool stuff there, too. And anyway, thank you so much to Squarespace. So, Greg, you worked at NASA on neural network applications. Oh, yeah. In, in college, I, I took a course uh, from the great Robert Heck Nielsen where I learned about uh, neural networks. Um, back in the 80s, uh, it was, it was still an incredibly esoteric topic. Neural networks are inspired by uh, the biology of the brain, mm -hmm. neurobiology. Uh, and it's an attempt to design systems that can represent, can map their environment without actually having algorithms programming them. They're just more okay. of a mathematical or statistical representation that adapts to the environment. Uh, it was a very exciting field back then. Yeah, I remember um, that was that was hot stuff. Uh, it never turned out to be the right way to build systems for the most part. There are still attempts to do neural networks at Google. A lot of the machine learning systems mm -hmm. still incorporate neural networks uh, for their trainability. Um, so while statistical methods are why we have great representation, great ability to do things like voice recognition now mm -hmm. and vi vision systems, um, usually we're using more traditional statistical software not uh, attempts to model the way the brain works. Right. Right, sure. But back then we didn't know, ex all we knew was statistics was a good way to do, solve hard problems. Yeah, right. Uh, I had a, I, I studied in college and then a bit in grad school uh, neural systems mm -hmm. and I thought this would be an exciting way to go when I got out of school. Yeah. And of course working at NASA is something every geeky kid dreams uh, yeah. of doing. Yeah, right? yeah completely. Yeah. Uh, so I struggled mightily to get an internship at NASA and failed. Uh, and so instead I swung uh, a contracting job uh, as the neural network guy on a project that was trying to come up with a demo system for classifying data as it streamed down from the Earth observing system mm -hmm. satellites. Mm -hmm. Oh, cool. Uh, this was at a time when we were expecting petabytes of data and no one could conceive mm -hmm. of petabytes of data. Yeah. Right. You know, we didn't have systems that handled even gigabytes of data back then. Mm -hmm. But we knew we needed the ability to actually analyze data as it came down in real time. Because mm -hmm. there would be far too much to ever go back and look for interesting features in the satellite photos. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Uh, so I worked for uh, part of a year at Goddard Space Flight Center uh, in incorporating uh, neural networks, standard networks like backpropagation networks into their uh, satellite data systems. Just experimental systems. Mm -hmm. And I learned when working uh, on a government project with some of the smartest and most interesting people in the industry that I would probably have more fun working on consumer products, even <laughs> if the problems weren't quite as challenging. Because uh, I dreamed more of writing a product that a million people would use right. Right. than I did of coming up with the coolest demo that a few uh, government officials would see after sure, a couple of right. years. Right, right. Uh, yeah, I guess there's probably at least two types of engineers then. You know, the one new 
cares so purely about making the greatest hack that could ever be done versus um, having their stuff out in front of uh, a zillion people. <laughs> um, just about everybody I know wants their stuff in front of a, <laughs> in front of a zillion people. But those other engineers exist, I'm sure, and there are many of them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I owned a Mac for a few years and uh, followed CompSys Mac programming groups and right. you know the industry magazines, but I had never actually had motivation to sit down and become a Mac programmer until I um, left the job at NASA, moved back to California, and sought out work ultimately at Apple. Apple's sort of the mothership for any of us who grew up right. um, with mm -hmm. Apple devices and yeah, sort sure. of in that orbit. Um, and everyone sort of imagines at some point, you know, what it would be like to work uh, in Cupertino, right. you know, the real right. thing. And I moved back to California, uh, finagled my way into a developer support job, helping Mac developers, which was a bit of a challenge since I had never actually done any serious Mac programming. Um, so, yeah. Uh, and then sort of as, the more I learned about the machine, the easier it became to find other positions in engineering on different parts oh, of uh, mm. the operating system. What were the, in those days, what were the, you know, the kind of the tools that you guys were using? Was it all Pascal or? Um... Uh, so Pascal was the mainstay, I guess, in the mm -hmm. early to mid 80s. Mm -hmm. um, by the early 90s, Apple had mostly shifted to C. Mm -hmm. uh, there was still some Pascal in the operating system mm -hmm. and the sample code and so forth. But the writing was on the wall that Pascal's days were mostly over. Right, right. Uh, Apple had uh, its tool set called uh, MPW, Mac MPW. Programmers Workshop. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and it had a, a number of fans, especially within Apple. But for people working on smaller projects, um, I guess Lightspeed C, Think yeah, C. Yeah, Think C. Yeah, yeah. Right. That was great. Um, which, think which C even, was my first ID, mm -hmm. okay. for sure. Oh, really? Hey, Doug. Before that was Lightspeed Pascal, which had the auto-indenting editor, which I, uh, I, I kind of missed. <laughs> uh, Especially when the indenting's important. Right? Yeah, right. <laughs> but thinks, the, the non-Apple tools in the 90s were crucial. First, you know, Think C and later the Metroworks tools. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we were just talking earlier today about how Code Warrior was so vital to that PowerPC yeah. transition, right? Yeah, it's, it's kind of sad now that we work in sort of a monoculture of mm -hmm. development tools. Um, right now for Mac and iPhone. Yeah. There's uh, a bit, have you seen, uh, you know, a lot of our colleagues are into uh, the app code. There's app recently, code, yeah. So there's yeah. a little bit of something happening there. Maybe there'll be some options. Yeah, it's, not, it's nice that there's an alternate IDE. Yeah. It's not quite the same as having an entire right. set of, of separate That's tools. That's a good point. Yeah. And, you know, as, as much as all of us would sort of love to make the best developer tools, it's really hard to see a big market for those. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. But boy, was I ever so excited when, what was it, quarterly? Uh, the Code Warrior update would come out oh, on yeah. the black yeah. and gold CD. And just think, you know, how much the internet changed, just oh, learning programming. Sure. I yeah. mean, you know, on the Mac, we had the toolbox was mm. the API we were writing to. And you had to have inside Mac. You had no real chance to develop if you didn't have inside Mac. That was no light investment. I yeah, mean, volumes right. of books was yeah. that, you know. And when I finally got a digital copy on a CD-ROM at some point, I remember just being thrilled, like, wow, that is amazing. I don't have to have that giant Mac stack Macintosh of books anymore. <laughs> programmer's toolbox assistant. Yeah, something. That, there was yeah. some There was some digital, yeah. maybe in HyperCard, that was yeah. written in HyperCard yeah. version. Or uh, QuickView. Oh, QuickView, yeah, yeah, sounds right. Yep. Yeah. That changed everything, and now it's just, you know, everything's available yeah, at our sure. fingertips documentation-wise. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, none of us would want to go back to when you needed the paper version. Right, right. right. Uh, but I, I don't know if you still have your copies. I do have some I things. Don't. There are a few, handful of books that I keep from those days. Um, what is the uh, master's uh, how to debug or write Mac software oh, yeah, or whatever? Scott I have masters, a couple yeah. of those, you right. know, like still Macintosh on the software, shelf. The old yeah. inside Macs. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I assume whatever, you know, is sort of an early influence in your life as an engineer is, is that is the set of artifacts that you never quite want yeah, to throw it's out. Hard, right? Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, sure. Yeah. You know, in that vein, what uh, did having those jobs at Apple live up to your expectations as, you know, Apple being the mothership and the, and the place you wanted to be? So I had envisioned Apple being filled with the world's greatest engineers. Right. Uh, Apple was filled with a lot of incredibly bright and talented people, and obviously his skill sets varied on programming, right. on mm-hmm. user interface Right, right. and so forth. It was certainly a lot of fun. Um, I was at Apple in the 90s. Uh, I left there about the time Steve Jobs returned. So the Apple right. that I remember was the one where engineers tended to run free. Mm-hmm. There wasn't excellent coordination between groups. There wasn't good focus about what products would actually get shipped. Right, yeah. right. Um, a lot of Apple's strengths then are their weaknesses today, just like their weaknesses then are their strengths today. Right. Yeah. Um, Engineers had a lot of freedom to explore, and a lot of things that we take for granted now came out of Apple back then, just right. in terms of the way computers work. Uh, it, it, it's a bit um, saddening to see it, the 90s seen as a dark time for Apple. Yeah. Apple produced a lot of cool products. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. You know, oh, not the least of which was yeah. the PowerPC machines. Yeah, mm-hmm. they were trying a lot of things then, yeah. too, right? I mean, the E-Mate, I mean, it wasn't big, but, you know, they were trying their hand yeah. at a lot of different interesting ideas. Yeah, um, the Newton, um, the QuickTake cameras. Yeah, quick. That was what, I mean, that was essentially the first digital camera, right? I mean, did anyone else have any uh, pure digital camera? Like, I feel like that was the first. Somebody had a on. really expensive one, yeah. but the QuickTick was the first. Like a consumer. consumer. It was the first yeah. really consumer-based yeah. one. Yeah. Uh, and it wasn't a yeah. success, but yeah, I I I, I bought one yeah. when they once they were you know they'd given up selling QuickTick 100 and they were blowing them out to employees. I got right. on one, and. I hadn't expected to use it much, but you know, at some point in your life, you acquire an item that you don't think will be transformative in yeah. your life, but it is. Your first digital mm-hmm. camera turns out to be that way. Yeah. 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 Uh, again, you know, I guess uh, most people now don't even remember film cameras. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Uh, but the, the transition from worrying about what photos you take or waiting for the photos to be developed to just take five take or ten yeah. pictures. Right. Yeah. I always mean to go back through my iPhoto library and just make a graph of how many pictures I took into before iPhone, and then every year with iPhone oh, yeah, longer right. in my possession, has just been ramping up the whole mm. time, right? You know, it's quite a curve. So you wrote one of the secret about boxes uh, back oh, in the day, right? Yeah. And uh, yeah, that was one of the one of the things that I guess Steve nixed. You know, no no more credit to anybody, and certainly no Easter eggs or secret about boxes or. Yeah, secret about boxes were a good tradition at Apple. Seven five, system seven five, I guess, had the uh, the breakout game. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, uh, an old friend of mine, uh, a brilliant guy, Brandon Webb, had done a wonderful rendered uh, flag demo. It was a flag that would blow in the wind, and you could control the wind. Uh, and I asked if I could turn that into a new secret about box for the system update that I was working on. I wasn't actually working as an engineer. I was just doing some um, debugging on the system update. Uh, but I had some you know, spare time in the evenings, and mm-hmm. I asked if I could make a secret about box out of that. Brandon said, sure. <laughs> so um, the, the team I was on you know, sort of pitched in. We made a, 
we, we got some good artwork of an iguana to mm. represent the team's mascot, Herman the Iguana. Mm -hmm. uh, was Herman an actual iguana? Herman was an actual iguana yeah. that was uh, in my colleague Dave Evans's office. Cool. Uh, and we took a photo of the Apple campus, the Infinite Loop campus, to serve as the backdrop, and, you know, packaged it up, tied it to a uh, trigger in the drag manager. Mm -hmm. um, I wrote some scrolling text for the bottom, and we just started throwing in the names of people who worked on the hardware and software release at the time, and everyone mm -hmm. who saw The Secret of Outbox and one other name added. So the scrolling credits at the bottom got right. longer and longer and uh, longer. Yeah. Um, and I asked uh, the tech lead on the system update if I could slip this in, and he said, oh, no, you know, we're just several months off from release. It's far too risky. Mm -hmm. But then two months later, he actually quit Apple to go work on games. So uh, the team I was on got a new tech lead, and I said, can I slip the secret of Outbox in? We were this much closer to release. And he said, sure, go ahead. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so we ended up with one of sort of the, the, the very cool and legendary bits of interactive animation yeah. uh, hidden away on a system update release. Oh, that awesome. was for the Power Surge uh, PCI, the first PCI Power Max. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and it survived through a bunch of releases. If you do something cool, the people who, who come after you want to keep it alive as long as it's practical. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, and so it was a good chance for me to learn about, you know, off-screen drawing uh, in yeah. greater detail and, mm -hmm. you know, trying to make sure that whatever was going on in the background didn't interfere. It's, ba back then, anything on the Mac could bring down the whole machine. Oh, oh, yeah. How well I remember. Oh, <laughs> man, it was so painful the number oh, of times God. you had to reboot, wasn't it? Right. Um, yeah, developing software was a nightmare because uh, of that. Yeah. Yes, it was constant reboots. Mm -hmm. It also meant that you had to be absolutely paranoid about never blowing anything with a pointer or overusing mm -hmm. memory mm -hmm. or taking too much time when you shouldn't because yeah. right. there was so much you could do that right. would just be utterly fatal. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it was a lot of fun working on system software and you know widespread apps and the secret about Box, but it also meant a constant vigilance to make sure that no code was written by accident. Mm -hmm. You couldn't have something work and not know why it worked. Yeah, you had and to understand everything. Right. Yeah. You had to understand mm -hmm. it. If something didn't work, you need to fully understand why it didn't work. Right. Um, otherwise, it's just too dangerous. Um, and, and we see that today when you have you know cars that reboot in the middle of the freeway mm -hmm. uh, or phones right. that crash. Right. Mm -hmm. ATMs going down. Uh, it's still possible, but luckily it's harder now. Um, so well, that's still good engineering discipline. I mean, I... I understand every line of code in the apps I write, and I hope that's true of most people. Yeah, I mean, we try. Occasionally, you have to see how someone else did something and include it if you don't fully understand it, but hopefully that's really rare. Yeah, right. uh, indeed. Uh, um, my old colleague, Ron Evitzer, um, has a, what I call Ron's Law, which I think is apropos, um, is that any sufficiently complex system works entirely by accident. <laughs> You can't look at a big application, even one you wrote, and not find bugs that make you scratch your head. Yeah, and those say, are the best. How did this how ever, did it ever work? work? Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's got to happen once every, like, three months. Chris and I would like to thank Windows Azure Mobile Services for sponsoring this episode of The Record. If you go to www.windowsazure.com slash iOS, you'll see a whole bunch of resources for getting started with... Um, creating an iOS app that connects to Windows Azure mobile services. You'll even see me. I'm there helping you uh, in a video. I'm not, I'm not really there. It's just a video of me. But you know how it works, right? It's pretty easy to get started. Pretty easy to learn. Pretty easy to make really cool services. 
So here's the thing, anybody, anybody can write an iOS app these days, right? And, and it kind of seems like everyone does practically, all kinds of iOS apps. But the iOS apps that, that really do well, that last, that, that make money, that really delight their customers, tend to be connected to some kind of service of some kind. Um, maybe it's just syncing, or maybe it's syncing and other stuff, or maybe it's other stuff. But there is, for sure, some kind of, some kind of cloud service, some kind of back-end thing, some kind of server thing. Now, if you're like me, and you've spent the last 10 years writing Mac apps and then iPhone and iPad apps, maybe you're thinking, oh, no, I need, you know, I need other people for this. I need, uh, I need a server guy. I need... You know, I don't, I, I don't have the knowledge, I don't have the expertise. Well, if you're thinking that, you're thinking wrong. Uh, go check out mobile services. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty cool. Now, I tend to just shorten the name to mobile services. Full name is Windows Azure Mobile Services. I, but let me tell you, it doesn't really have anything to do with Windows. Um, it, you're, you're writing in JavaScript, right? Just plain JavaScript, not, you know, not JavaScript sharp plus plus or something. It's just JavaScript. Uh, the server's running Node.js. It's, you know, you're writing in, in your favorite text editor, whether it's Sublime Text or TextMate or BBEdit or Vim or Emacs, whatever. You're, you know, you're not running Visual Studio here. You're just, you're working on your Mac and you're getting stuff done. It's really cool. Even as a command line client, uh, one of my favorite parts, in fact, is um, the support for Git. So if you've gone to the website, you've, you've probably looked at the, you know, the easy tutorial, right, where you're writing scripts in a web page and everything. Well, that's kind of just like the, the quick on-ramp. After that, you can write, you know, your, your scripts all in your text editor and then deploy them to the server just by pushing with Git. Now, I have to say I'm a mercurial guy usually, but, you know, it doesn't take that much to learn the basics of Git. And my, my bet is most, most of our listeners, you in particular, are probably a Git person, um, kind of the odd man out, right? So you're really happy to hear that deploying via Git is um, is the way to make this work, and, you know, and that's great. I, I, you know, Git. It's not once again, it's not Git Sharp plus plus something. It's just plain old Git. It works. It's nice, and um, yeah, you ought to check it out. Oh, and while while you're at it, you know, Google around a little bit, find out about writing unit tests too. A uh, little hint is I, I use Mocha myself. Um, not Mocha Sharp Plus Plus. No, just plain old Mocha. You know, so, uh, you know, don't be frightened just because it comes from Microsoft. It's really, you know, standard open source kind of technology that, that is used in lots of places and that we Mac developers have come to know and love. And don't be afraid. It's server stuff. You can get this. It's really not that hard. And it is, to my great surprise, uh, a ton of fun. Love it. It's really cool. And, you know, that feeling of power when you, you know, you're writing a, a client app and then, you know, you connect it to your cloud service that you wrote. Wow. That just feels great. It feels like you know, the, the world opens up at that, at that moment. It's, a, it's fantastic. Absolutely love it. Anyway, so www.windowsazure.com slash iOS. Go check it out. Have some fun. Make some really cool stuff. So I stuck around at Apple for many years. Um, I hopped around different parts of, uh, of the operating system. Um, I, I think by the end, everything they had asked me to work on never shipped. 
and mm. everything that I had just done on my own as a lark pretty much did ship. <laughs> um, and, and our legendary thing for which you're not right. now. Yeah. Um, I was frustrated that Apple never had provided desktop pictures in the operating system. There were third-party mm -hmm. hacks that did it. Mm -hmm. oh, sure. The problem is um, the third-party hacks, for some reason, always seem to make the system unstable. Mm -hmm. right. And it seemed like it shouldn't be that hard to do. So one thing I did on the side was write a desktop pictures implementation. Oh, cool. And I showed it around the system software folk, around the system software groups, and the folks there said, great, that's shipping in the next release. I was like, well, I guess so. Um, and that became an example of sort of a mainstream operating feature, operating system feature that people take for granted today. Right. But wasn't there then and frankly wasn't on anyone's roadmap. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good things happen when people just say, I want to do this and they do it. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think organizational planning leads to nearly as many, you know, cool right. features or inventions. Mm -hmm as just individual passions. Yeah. I, well, think I hope that Apple still has that. And, and occasionally I hear stories where it sounds I, like they do. I think do. they do. It, yeah. I mean, I've heard stories about AirPlay being yeah, uh, sure. just an internal hack uh -huh. that then caught on because it was a great idea, right? Yeah. So and I'm sure there must be other I've heard that about like uh, that. Front Row, that whole yeah, UI. Yeah, um, yeah. The UI appearance stuff. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's kind of an important one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, certainly down at the level of like APIs, those mostly, I'm sure, come out of what the engineers think is right. what needed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, every executive in the industry wants to have the Steve Jobs vision of knowing just what consumers actually want. Right. right. Well, the the iPod was a case too, where um, yeah, I can't remember the guy, but the guy is like, oh, we should build this, we should build this. And mm -hmm. it took a while to convince people. It wasn't like Steve Jobs came back to Apple knowing right. that in a couple of years later he was going to make yeah. the iPod. Yeah. I mean, it's. It doesn't always come from the top, which right. is cool. It's probably important that it doesn't, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed. When I, uh, when I decided I wanted to take some time off uh, from working at Apple was about the same time that um, Apple bought Next 4, or however you want to characterize that. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Next acquired Apple, yeah. Essentially, yeah. Uh, so I, I didn't really have any overlap with uh, with you know, the new organization under Steve Jobs. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I didn't really uh, encounter Steve Jobs until a few years later when I was working at Real Networks okay. and uh, was asked to join uh, Real CEO on a visit down to Cupertino to meet with Steve. Um, Mac OS X seems like a success now, mm -hmm. but uh, Apple announced it in 97 or 98, right. and it never really had a formal consumer release for another four years or so after that. Um, it, it was interesting seeing, you know, the delays on Windows Vista mm -hmm. leading to Microsoft being excoriated mm -hmm. when Apple had taken just as long for Mac OS X. Yeah. Right. Um, but nobody had expectations of Apple. At yeah, that everyone time. had written them yeah, off, essentially. They're, like, yeah. they're doomed, it doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. And Mac OS X itself wasn't a foregone conclusion as being a reasonably successful operating system. Right. Apple right. was desperate to get the major players mm -hmm. uh, up and running yeah. natively. Yeah. And that started with, you know, the big ones like Microsoft Office right. and Adobe Photoshop. But they had a substantial list of apps they needed to have on Mac OS X yeah. in order to remove the objections of their users oh, yeah. from moving from classic right. Mac to right. Mac OS X. I happened to work at Adobe at that time. And uh, even here in Seattle, which is not where the, you know, main Adobe campus is, right? Where it's sort of satellites, like it maybe still remains the biggest office that's not in the uh, main Adobe headquarters. And... Apple came up and threw us a party, and 
brought us machines with OS X on it. You guys, don't you love this? Please make your software for this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, the, the confident Apple of the post iPod era yeah. um, wasn't there yet. Right. So one of those apps had to be Real Player, right? So how, how did you end up working on that? Um, I had moved to uh, Seattle um, a few years earlier in 1998 um, without an intention of staying. I thought I'd move back to Silicon Valley eventually, but there was too much about Seattle that I liked, like the ability to go you know, hiking easily mm-hmm. um, and sort of live in the woods but work in the city. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so I found a job locally and at the time there weren't a lot of places looking for Mac programmers because the Mac was still seen in the late 90s as a dying platform. So I ended up at Real Networks. Uh, And Real Networks at the time was already losing its shine as sort of a hot internet Mm -hmm. startup Mm -hmm. and instead RealPlayer had grown to be not sufficiently reliable Mm -hmm. Uh, and the, the company wasn't sort of earning the love of its users. But it was a good place to work. There were a lot of smart right. people. And I'd worked there for several years. It wasn't clear that they were going to commit to Mac OS X at all because the company um, sort of had a lot of ex-Microsoft employees and was very focused on Microsoft Windows mm-hmm. as the platform of the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Apple decided they wanted RealPlayer on Mac OS X because it was still an important enough application to play audio that was online. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Steve Jobs asked Rob Glazer, real CEO, to come meet with him. And I was invited along as, uh, I don't know, maybe the token engineer, (laughs) the token Mac developer. The the guy who would be charged with actually doing this. Uh, And um, the two of them cut a deal in which uh, Real agreed to deliver a Mac OS X native version of RealPlayer, I think less than three months later at Mm. uh, Apple's next conference. I guess it was a Macworld conference, I'm not certain. Mm. uh, and Rob Glazer would go on stage and actually uh, join Steve in announcing the availability of RealPlayer. So in preparation for that meeting, I and uh, my colleagues at Real had figured out that we had no hope of porting our existing <laughs> Mac version of RealPlayer to Mac OS X, uh-huh. right. which made us joyously happy uh-huh. because RealPlayer had been around for so many years and had acquired so many features that were focused on the business needs of the company more really than the desires Mm. of users. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when you're given a very short deadline, that's the excuse you need to go to a clean slate and Mm -hmm. say, what's the bare minimum that my users actually want? And we were able to do that for the Mac OS X version. Um, We hope to not only shed sort of the heavy features of the earlier version of RealPlayer, um, but also to start from scratch and make sure that it didn't acquire uh, a an adverse reputation that earlier versions had. And so my coworkers and I sort of worked our tails off for a few months um, to be able to uh, present to Steve something which could actually ship to users Mm -hmm. just a couple of months after that. Starting from scratch, and we created what we thought was a clean, solid project, uh, an app that did just what users wanted as far as playing back the video content that was online without anything extraneous Mm -hmm. and without any reason to fear it. It was a drag install. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, back uh, back especially in the later days of the classic Mac when you installed software you were sort of afraid what it would put in your system yeah. right sure. mm-hmm. uh, extensions were the, yeah, the bane yeah, of I remember the old yeah. days of the, the marching extensions mm-hmm. uh, right. throwing boot up right they could and patch then, the system and you never yeah. know right. and then um, you would have to run 
used Cassie and Green's conflict uh -huh. catcher, yep. which would do like a binary search through the extensions until we figured out what was causing the problem. That was hell. <laughs> That's bad. How did we survive all that? So, so um, did you write this? Was it a Carbon app, or were you able to start totally it, fresh new Cocoa app? It was app? a Carbon app because we were using some user uh, user interface toolkit that that we had developed at Real. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, on a later version, uh, maybe a year later, uh, the engineers I was working with and I decided we wanted to redo it as a Cocoa app. So. Mm -hmm. At a major rev of real player, without telling one, telling anyone, including the management at real, we re rewrote the app from scratch, from mm -hmm. carbon to cocoa. Um, it was a learning experience for us. Yes, yeah, your right. first cocoa app uh -huh. is a big learning experience. Yeah. Um, but cocoa was the first user interface framework that I had ever used that I thought really saved a lot of time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. right. Sure. I was so used to frameworks that you know worked really well for the author of the framework, mm -hmm. but just for the developers to try to use the framework ended up adding lots of layers on top of the native OS. And uh, AppKit was actually a big time saver and pretty yep. easy to work with. And so within a year, we had rewritten it, thrown out um, our own UI tools and wrote it just as a Cocoa application. Oh, Unfortunately, cool. it was a Cocoa application where um, the windows and the controls had custom drawing. Mm. And so users would complain that we weren't using native mm. Controls, even though mm -hmm. we were just because based had, on the look and yeah, right, sure. Yeah. Uh, but that was my introduction to uh, to working in Cocoa late in two thousand two. Mm -hmm. uh, at least Real Player didn't look crazy like Winamp. <laughs> Skinnable monstrosity. Yeah. It, it, you may recall the there was the appearance manager slated for the, oh, late, yeah, sure. the classic Mac days. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, with Gizmo uh, and the different... Right, uh, yeah. and that those never got released because one of the first things Steve Jobs did when he returned to Apple was kill the customization of mm -hmm. the Mac user interface. Mm -hmm. um, and it's hard to argue that Gizmo and the other appearances they had were rather silly to, yeah. you know, at yeah. best. Yeah. Um, but the whole skinnability fad of the 90s and mm -hmm. early 2000s seems to be behind us now. Thank goodness. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I remember the, uh, running a, I think, a system extension called Kaleidoscope, which mm -hmm. would emulate the look of, of Copeland on a System 7 dot whatever right. machine. Even though Copeland hadn't shipped, there were um, lots of screenshots and things out there and everything. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, Apple definitely sort of had envy of the Kaleidoscope type UI. Yeah, and they right. originally implemented the Appearance Manager as an extension on top of the OS instead of implementing it in mm -hmm. the OS. Mm -hmm. um, but after a lot of work to make the system appearance savvy, Steve said, no, we won't ship appearances. Right. Um, and even to this day, you don't get much choice in how either Mac OS looks or iOS looks. Right, right. I'm no, sure. no. I think they, they must see it as part of their brand, really. Yeah. Um, I remember being at... Uh, Internet World Conference in 1997. Uh, this was right around when OS X had been announced. And the controversy was that it was going to require 128 megabytes of RAM. People thought, yeah, there's no way. Computers are not going to have that much. You, no one's going to be able to run this thing. It turned out to be OK. Uh, but the other thing is, uh, during that conference, Jobs announced, um, I think the end, the end of the Newton? Maybe, maybe not. The end of OpenDoc, mm -hmm. and there, and I was there. Um, I wasn't working for Apple, but I was there with uh, Dave Weiner, and we were working with an Apple booth. So we were there with a bunch of Apple people, including some engineers who had been OpenDoc engineers until just hearing on the news that yep. not OpenDoc engineers. All of us. Our team at Adobe picked up several refugees from that team. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> did, you, did you ever do anything with OpenDoc, or did you manage to miss that particular? 
Uh, I did not work with OpenDoc. Um, uh, my friend Ron Evanser was a big fan, and he convinced some some third-party developers to, to invest in it, and he felt terrible <laughs> when it was sacked. OpenDoc, of course, was part of a long line of, of system software efforts at Apple mm-hmm. that uh, either never sort of made it to the public or made it to the public and then were withdrawn. Yeah. QuickDraw GX, oh, yeah, uh, sure. Open Collaborative Environment, uh, mm-hmm. PowerTalk, I guess. Right. Uh, it's, it, I mean, there was a long list of big failures, especially yeah. back in the 90s. Maybe they still have the big failures. Probably. We just don't hear about them. <laughs> yeah. Well, they never make it out, at least. I, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, oh, no, wait, <laughs> iCloud. Yeah. <laughs> Whoops. Wait a minute. We're not talking about the present, are we? Yeah. iCloud. It's interesting, though, that Apple seems to keep returning to the theme of um, uh, fixing the way we work with documents because last few years it's been, well, now save as is gone or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, right. uh, now we have revisions of your documents. Right. Well, an iCloud you know, kind of and, and iCloud storage. hide yeah. the file system entirely. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, I mean, while we appreciate that the operating systems need to be designed first and foremost for casual users, or at least not sophisticated users. Um, it's frustrating t- t- to feel that it's gone a bit overboard sometimes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's really hard to live in a world without a file system model. Yeah, right. You know, when you can't share files between applications, right. that's mm-hmm. a huge constraint. Yeah, um, yeah it really is. It's. Um but then under OpenDoc, the philosophy was different. So I wonder if there'll be, you know, if this current model fails, yeah. will there be, you know, yet another way? Because OpenDoc was the idea was, um, um, it was a container, and then you had different like plug-in parts. Right. Right. So the document a, was the center. Right. right. Than the so app. you could have mm-hmm. a, yeah, yeah, exactly. So you could have a spreadsheet which opened in an OpenDoc container, and then maybe you have an image in your spreadsheet. When you're interacting with the image, you're actually pulling in like. Right. Photoshop or something right. for just that part, and then yeah. you go back to. It whatever. always sounded like a great idea to me. I, was, I wanted yeah. to. I wanted to experience that world. You know? Yeah. All on right. the other hand, it, I just didn't think that it was just never all going to fit together. Yeah. The, it's you know, the code lot, was never it? going to gonna, it, it gonna had work. A huge right. API. Yeah. I mean, I mean, one of the nice things, the nicest things, perhaps that Apple, you know, adopted from Next was the focus on developer tools first. From, from my perspective, the bloom is off the rose as far as the iPhone being you know, a wonderful operating system. Right. There are a, a lot of ways in which it, it, it's increasingly frustrating. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm still happy to be uh, an iPhone and Mac developer because I'm more than satisfied with the tools Apple gives us. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. Well, and they've, they've been making some real advances now. I mean, when things like LLVM and uh, just oh, pieces yeah. of the tool chain are... Mm-hmm. Coming along, and we were at lunch today talking so much about instruments and how yeah, right. how, how great of a mm-hmm. tool that is. That it's it's free essentially if you're a developer. I mean, it's amazing amount of work and amazing things you can do with it. Yeah, although a lot of these, you know, we don't see when we're focused on Apple's developer tools how much is borrowed from or behind what you know is going on outside in the world. Right. Yeah. Microsoft's mm-hmm. developer tools are still you know awesome in so many ways. I hear but, that a lot. And, yeah. yeah. Visual Studio is amazing. Yeah, uh, yeah the, the advantages they, they make with languages are great. Mm. Um, you know, as happy as we are to have, you know, automatic reference counting in Objective-C, uh, C-sharp is still way ahead in so many ways. Mm. Right. Um, and, you know, a, a lot of, you know, what we think is cool in Xcode was, you know, in Eclipse much earlier. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I learned when moving from working inside of Apple to outside of Apple how much I had been in a bubble. Uh, mm-hmm. As an example, 
at Apple back in the 90s, we thought sort of, you know, playing back video was a soft problem because QuickTime did it. Mm -hmm. And I tended to assume that people on Windows, since they had QuickTime, could play back video just as well. I didn't realize until I left Apple and started working in a Microsoft-focused environment how much the, the Windows users despised QuickTime. Mm -hmm. The installation experience, the reliability, the mm -hmm. playback quality just wasn't anywhere close to right. what they wanted. Yeah. I, heard, I saw some of the same complaints later when Apple ported iTunes to mm -hmm. Windows. Mm -hmm. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah, and I don't think Safari caught on on Windows either. I have, just yeah, had, was it killed eventually? Uh, I don't know. I just assumed no it was still around, but, you know, maybe it's not, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, you know, we, we tend to live in a set of applications and tools and think that our worldview is reasonable, mm -hmm. but often people using a different platform or a different tool set or different apps um, have you know, advantages and disadvantages that we yeah. just oh, don't sure. yeah. uh, You know, I do have to say though, I've used Dev Studio a decent amount, all the work. Um, when I was at Adobe, we were, we were all pretty much cross-platform engineers working on both platforms. And there were some things like the debugger, especially in those days, that I liked about Visual Studio, but I never liked Visual Studio. I never did as much as everyone else thought it was the best thing ever. I, give me some Code Warrior, and then I grew to, and then I grew to love Project Builder after a while, especially the first you know, Xcode after it kind of got into its sweet spot. But I never was a big fan of, of Code Warrior, still my favorite all its power. ever, and I think maybe that's just misty-eyed sentimentality. But, yeah, I, but it, was, it was a cool piece of software. Yeah. I loved it so fast. It's frustrating that Apple gave up emulating the older systems. We can't run 68,000 software anymore. Right, sure. right, yeah. Because um, it, it would be nice to boot into the older operating systems, try mm -hmm. out the old apps, and see yeah. if, if you're... I've got some code here and there, like this whole game yeah. engine that I built and never did anything with and stuff. It's like, I don't even know how I would do with it. Like, it's, I've got the code, but I can't even run it now. Uh, someone will write a 68K Mac emulator right. in, in a JavaScript. Browser. Yeah, in exactly. Yeah. <laughs> running it in my web browser. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, at, at Real, I worked on a few generations of Real Player, um, and the, the biggest lesson I learned there was once you've lost um, the trust of users, it doesn't matter what you ship afterwards. Right. You're not it's just it so back. hard to get it back, right? Um, so, you know, I and my colleagues did our best to, to make the best possible Mac application we could, mm -hmm. um, but we could never regain reputation right, that, yeah. right. that had been sacrificed. And, you know, after probably too many years, uh, I jumped ship and ended up at working at Google. Right. Um, Google was starting to build a team of Mac developers. Uh, the primary motivation at the time was probably to get Google Desktop, their Windows search application, Windows oh, search okay. utility, onto the Mac. That did ship for Macs, didn't it? It did ship for yeah, Mac, okay. and we had the most amazingly talented team of Mac developers who solved some shockingly hard problems mm -hmm. um, in terms of, for example, making sure that you not only had access to every earlier revision of your documents, but that each revision preserved the proper permissions. Mm. So only the user who could read that revision at the time could read right, it later. Sure. Oh, yeah. um, and they dealt with you know, a lot of privacy and security issues that, were that are very challenging mm -hmm. um, on the Mac when you're writing a system level utility. Uh, but Mac users had uh, Spotlight. Yeah. And mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, superficially, Spotlight did all the search they cared right, about. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that, that, that project solved some very hard problems, but you know, never, never, never got the longevity that uh, perhaps the engineering warranted. Right. Uh, and Google's hopped through a variety of different client applications, uh, and of course now we're working really hard on iPhone applications. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, Google is very sort of platform agnostic when it comes to making sure that users can take advantage of the services. Mm -hmm. 
and we're certainly focused on you know consumer experiences, uh, which, which you know every organization, every engineer has their own strengths, and not everyone's strength is to emulate Apple. Right. So it's a little frustrating seeing so many companies try to produce the next product just like Apple would mm -hmm. introduce. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, it's like uh, an artist. An artist needs to find his or her voice. Right. And, you right. know, they can't they can't just imitate somebody else. Right. And uh, I thought um, the app you worked on, uh, Google Map, is uh, is like Google finding its voice on on iOS yeah. at least. Yeah. I mean, that was like it's one of the best things I've seen Google. It do. feels Very like good. Google, it but it's like also Google, but it's nice design. And yeah. It feels good. It's a good mm -hmm. experience when you use it. Yeah. yeah. And it and, and it has better data. <laughs> and that's accurate you know, one data. Of Google's strengths, right? Pretty now. amazing. Yeah. yeah, Google Maps was was uh, uh, sort of a shot in the dark because you know uh, it wasn't clear what role it would play on iOS. You know, when mm -hmm. we started developing it, mm -hmm. um, I started as part of a small team um, here in the Seattle area working on it. I uh, worked on the client mm -hmm. because the truth is, Google Maps is not an application. Google Maps is you know, a whole bunch of data accumulated over many years, you know, with many tools and, you know, a huge amount of effort of individuals. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, on top of engineering, just sort through and make, you know, make that data available in useful ways and then to funnel it into a variety of client experiences. Mm -hmm. You know, first right. the web and then later individual devices. And so we had to write a really slick application for iPhone. Um, you know, very fast, very smooth, mm -hmm. yep. and we focused a lot on making the user experience very approachable, despite having the functionality people expect out of Google's data set. Um, but ultimately, that was providing sort of a pretty face on top of many years of engineering and data collection right. uh, that the companies worked really hard on. And I didn't appreciate when I started working um, the Maps project how crucially important it was to users, not that not that we just produce a good maps application, but that the data it, it rests upon be sort of comprehensive and reliable. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, we especially you know, take for granted in the US because there are a lot of good options for maps in the US. And right. you know, frankly, Apple Maps, sure. you know, for its weaknesses at the gate is a, a, a pretty you know, outstanding right. product mm -hmm. right. just for maps. Yeah, our expectations have gone up really high compared to just where it started. Before we had iPhones and smartphones, even then, yeah. the mapping wasn't as accurate. I've been many places, you know, I was, we were in Hawaii trying to use maps and getting sent to roads that no longer existed, and these were Google Maps, yeah, right? Sure. I mean, it's yeah. just that, in, yeah, each year, it just gets more and more refined, right? Yeah. Um, but Google has invested, you know, unbelievably in the data collection and mm -hmm. improvements in the data and the engineering. Uh, and so it was, uh, it was a lot of fun to work with a team that sort of had, you know, carte blanche to create you know, in a fairly short amount of time, mm -hmm. a really nice client on top of the great data set. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. not a small mobile app. I mean, I f I, I've got to think that there's a lot going on because uh, it does it does uh, navigation too, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, um, you know, we were able to take advantage of the fact that there was there was already an Android, uh, yeah, you know, mm -hmm. navigation mm -hmm. app, right. uh, and there, so we already had servers set up to work from. Okay, mm um, and. And the uh, the iOS and the Android clients are talking to the same servers. Right, right. Mm -hmm. uh, so you know we had we had some legs up there. Yeah. Um, but uh, it, it's 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 exciting, uh, you know, to watch a team grow quickly and to have everyone focused on a common vision. I mean, I, yeah. I hate wishy-washy terms like vision, you know, mm -hmm. very corporate yeah. speak. Yeah. But it's true when you mm -hmm. work closely with a couple or many other people that you all have in your minds the 
same idea of what the product ought to be like. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, right. yeah. Uh, it's not fun when that isn't true. I've I've been yeah. in that situation many yeah. times, and that's very frustrating, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but when when you, there is sort of a convergence in terms of what your vision of the product ought to be, what the experience ought to be like for users, what right. the important features and attributes are, and what's less important. Mm-hmm. Um, that makes the development a lot more fun and yeah. a lot easier, and you end up with a better product. Uh, and that's much easier when you're working alone or in a very mm. small team. Yeah, right. yeah sure. Yeah. yeah, very hard to do that with a big team. Yeah. So I assume that the the number of Apple developers, whether it be iOS or Mac, has just been growing at Google since you started. Um, it must have been, I'm guessing, when you first started, it must have been a pretty small number of you that were developing for Apple's platforms. We, we put together initially a team of around a dozen people That's back in 2005. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And now we have um, many scores of developers just on iOS. I yeah. don't wow. have yeah. a number off the tip of my tongue, but yeah. um, we're, we're probably one of you know, the, 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 the biggest iOS developers yeah. outside of I Apple. I can see that. Mm-hmm. I can absolutely see that. Uh, and it's hard because it's a really competitive environment to find people with the mm-hmm. right skills. Oh, right, sure. Um, or at least the talent to come up to speed quickly. Right. What's it like being in Google and being the Apple developers? Like, I can imagine at Microsoft for years, it, being in the Mac business unit was probably like flying the pirate flag, right? And being yeah, over right, like sure. those yeah. guys, right? Is, is it a little more integrated in Google? or? Uh, so our applications are, are very much tied to the servers. So mm-hmm. we don't work independently of what's going on on the server side. Right. So we're, we're not uh, sort of off in our corners on, from that perspective. Uh, but especially, you know, back in the early days with our first Mac applications, um, we weren't at all mainstream. When I started at Google working on Mac applications, we had no build system. We had no standard mm-hmm. way to compile our software. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had no standard tool set. We were completely right. starting from scratch. And all of the infrastructure in the company was set up to help you know, people build web services and web apps. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it certainly evolved a lot since then. And we, we don't feel like second-class citizens. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't even feel like we're on the fringe because a lot of what Google does now is, is focused on clients. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you look at Chrome, when you look at Android, you know, these are all very distinct development environments and right. have di- different needs. You know, Chrome builds on, you know, what was WebKit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Android is, you know, their own operating system. So Google is fractured in that sense, but we're all very much tied to um, generally the server side. Right. To, well, you know, that's make the heart sure, of Google, right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, providing data to users in useful ways and making sure you're not tied to a specific device. Right. Uh, Google's a very idealistic place, too. Um, I've never seen another or- large organization which was always trying to do the right things for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. It's frustrating seeing columnists write sort of cynical looks at the company because mm-hmm. inside people aren't cynical at all. Right, right. It's different. Um, you know, I think what, what concerns outsiders, though, is that uh, engineers and designers and, and so on may be very idealistic and not at all cynical, but uh, leadership sometimes isn't, isn't always as idealistic as you hope. Uh, you know, and that's stereotypical. You could think that of any uh, of any company. Um, you know that the average rank and file person is there for the right reasons, and that leadership are, you know, uh, not good people. But you know, I don't know. I don't know that about Google. I don't know the 
that about anywhere else either. Um, the, the current leadership is is every bit as idealistic. Granted, you know, everyone's ideals are a little bit different sure. about what's right, but uh, Google, you know, doesn't create products to sell advertising. Mm-hmm. You know, Google, you know, does, you know, is in the advertising business in order to fund doing cool computer science. Mm-hmm. Right, sure. And that's, that's, seems to be the view from the top to the bottom. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know what the leadership will be like in 10 or 20 years. Yeah, sure. But it's a lot of fun being in an environment which is like, you know, a fraternity house filled with graduate students mm-hmm. all working, you know, passionately on all what right. they believe in. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's refreshing after seeing, you know, environments where the thought is how can we create a product to get a continuing revenue stream from users? Mm-hmm. How can we get their credit card number and find a way to build them monthly for something? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, how can we dominate a market? How can, you know, how can we, uh, you know, the, the various things that large companies may take as their motivations, you know, competitiveness. Right. Um, those things I don't see at Google. We're not a competitive place. We're very much uh, what cool things can we do to organize mm-hmm. information to deliver it. Right. Google should write an RSS reader. <laughs> well, it's a little frustrating seeing Google um, – you know, follow the focus mantra and push aside some of the products that we were, you know, most proud of. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there, there's a corporate strategy aspect there, but there's the also as a geeky user, I want to see as many cool tools out there as possible. Sure, yeah. um, I suppose it's, you know, maturation for a company the size of Google to realize they, they you know, they shouldn't be the provider of choice for every tool that every geek wants yeah. to use. Right. And I guess it's good for the rest of the industry to recognize that, uh, you know, let's let's you know build a lot of backbones in addition to Google. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I I mean, I think it was time for Google Reader to shut down, and I think it'll be good for for uh, at least the RSS reader market and users of the software. But uh, still, man, that was rough for a lot of people, <laughs> and actually, it's going to be rough pretty soon. Yeah, it's not over yet. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but uh, what it was a little frustrating though was then Google Keep is announced like a week later right. or something. Well, like, I was just curious, like what your feelings are on will there be less projects like that that don't have an obvious life, you know, uh, expectancy? Uh, you think? Um, I mean, we're al- we're already seeing a lot fewer uh, small projects being released mm-hmm. from Google. Um, it's not a place where engineers start and ship as many. Uh, projects as they did a few years ago. Rather, mm-hmm. more people are focused on fewer products. Um, that said, there's still a great deal of independence there, um, probably more so than at most big companies for individual engineers to, yeah. to create a project, make it available as open source, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, or even turn it into, into something that's officially backed by the company. So I don't, I, I don't think there's a, there's a big shift. There's an effort, especially f- you know, from the executives, to focus a bit more and have fewer overall projects. And, you know, as an engineer and a geeky user, that saddens me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not necessarily bad for the company, and I don't think it, it, I don't think it's a harbinger of any big change. There's still a lot of really far-out projects. Mm-hmm. Self, the self-driving car project. Which yeah, I'm, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Google Glass. Google Glass. Uh, I'm really curious to see how that ends up. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a, a lot of, you know, attempts to uh, use neural networks and other systems to you know, handle big data mm-hmm. and pattern recognition and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the company, you know, isn't fundamentally different. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, you know, 
in, in the same way that Apple isn't the Apple that we loved back when they were, you know, more innocent yeah. 20, 20 uh, right. or more years ago. Uh, Google's evolving as well. Um, I, you know, the bigger evolution that I'm interested in is like what happens with, uh, with Microsoft. Mm. It's a fascinating question. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Can you see yourself working at Microsoft? I don't, uh, no. I mean, obviously not a near term thing, but like, you know, um, certain Microsoft futures could happen that might be enticing to you. I, I don't have any personal antipathy towards Microsoft. Um, I think Microsoft needs to figure out where it's going when it's not quite, you know, the behemoth mm -hmm. in the operating system world that they were. Right. Um, I'm certainly spoiled by uh, the environment at Google as an engineer, so it would be hard for me to go from Google to another big corporate environment. Right. Um, and it's a little frustrating uh, seeing Microsoft's PR offensives that I don't think are really serving Microsoft or the industry well. Greg, you've done a, a fair amount of work of um, where native apps co collect to the, uh, connect to the web in some way. So hmm. you wrote, uh, obviously, the real stuff uh, was streaming audio. Uh, you worked on Google Maps recently. And in between time, you worked on, if I remember correctly, uh, API support for yeah. a whole bunch of different right. Google products. Has this been, um, did this, um, uh, blending a, of native and and web stuff kind of start at real, or were you into this in some way earlier? Um, I just wonder how, how this theme in your career came to be. Uh, since I worked on system software uh, in my years at Apple, um, API design had always been as interesting to me as user interface design. So. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I just ended up at Google initially, not on one, you know, not not on one of their major applications. So I had time to focus on uh, necessary underpinning libraries, mm -hmm. and so I had to, you know, learn why people dislike XML by writing a, a library that allows <laughs> Objective C apps to uh -huh. talk to Google services without having to deal with the XML, mm -hmm. and I, you know, learned the the pluses and minuses of the new authentication protocols, OAuth one and OAuth two. Mm -hmm. Uh, by creating layers just to save uh, other app application developers, both inside and outside of Google time. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of frustration when you write uh, uh, a client application that has to talk to a server of the overhead of messy stuff, like mm -hmm. signing in, Yeah. Um, right. like the peculiarities of individual protocols. And it was a niche that just happened to be available and fit the time I had. Uh, to focus on creating APIs and open source mm -hmm. libraries. Uh, I really like working on open source because you know, there's, there's no secrets about what, what you're working on. Right. I'm not sure I believe in open source as a model where lots of people contribute because it's rare for more than a few people to contribute to an open source project. But at least you don't pretend that there's some magic in your code. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if I do something dumb, some developer who tries to use it will send an email mm -hmm. or uh, file a bug right pointing this out. Right. Uh, it's it's part of being in a corporate environment where corporations like to pretend there's magic sauce that makes uh, their software right, go right, and right. that must be kept a secret. Right. And when you've looked at a big code base, you realize that there's cool stuff there, but there's a lot that is just almost embarrassing. Mm -hmm. This is true in any big organization where yeah, right. the group is. Uh, and so I, I've enjoyed being able to work on things which a lot of apps can take advantage of. Mm -hmm. uh, and where the kimono's open. Anyone can see right. exactly what we're doing. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's gratifying when you see what you've done, whether it's user interface or whether it's even API design patterns. 
be reused by others. Cool. Uh, are the uh, are uh, is this code all still available that you were working on? Um, are are you back to working on it now? Uh, I'm still working on it. My primary project is currently still Google Maps for mm-hmm. iOS, um, but I am maintaining open source libraries for Google's uh, APIs and authentication cool. from uh, iPhone and Macs. Cool. Well, we'll put that in the show notes for sure. Yeah, hundred percent. Everyone listening, go check it out. Write cool apps that connect to Google's cool data. Uh, yeah, it's it's hard. <laughs> it, it's authentication, sign in, reliable mm. connections to servers. Oh, I hate OAuth. Yeah. Oh, really yeah. Do. Right. Yeah. No one likes these things. Man. <laughs> and and frankly, even delivering a library for iPhone developers to use is hard. Yeah. There's, there's no nice packaging for yeah. iOS like there is for Mac. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, there's no equivalent to a framework which packages everything. Right. Yeah. When I first started writing uh, Mac apps, I, I loved frameworks so much that I would write like three quarters of my app as <laughs> separate, you know, different uh, frameworks. Uh, uh, I gave up that approach because it was too much work, but yeah. still. I, right. you know, but I just if, thought they were so awesome. If, if you're bringing in someone else's code, it's nice yeah, if, it's if they provide yeah. a framework. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not quite sure why Apple hasn't provided a nicer way for us to share code yeah. on Probably iOS. just not, not eating it internally. <laughs> it's probably, probably true. Yeah. Done it. So, I've, yeah. I, you know, some people have come up with some. Uh, there is a hack to sort of get a framework to work. Um, yeah, it's elaborate, right? And I, mm. I don't even remember. Yeah, yeah I think I think Jeff Cohen. Um, yeah, uh, who who was at Google for a time uh, came up with a system that to be with the one to, to make sort of a fake framework, yeah. which was really a yeah. static library. It is, yeah, yeah, yeah. still still underneath. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. um, but it, it's it's don't. I mean, we're so lucky to be able to work on software that you know millions of people can use. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, so many people have iPhones and Macs now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's hard to imagine that, you know, t- 10 years ago, 20 years ago, if you wrote software, you were very lucky to have yeah. dozens of people. Yeah, ever. yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, one of the things I love is that you, you can get the feedback from the people. I mean, uh, you know, I recently shipped a, a Mac app this year, and uh, it's great hearing all the different ways that people are using it mm-hmm. that we never about when we were making it, you know, um, and, and hearing the appreciation that people have for the existence of the software. It's got a, quite a, a nice feedback loop these days that I think is really amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Craig, it has been a great talk. I love some of these things that we've gone over today. Uh, Thanks, Craig. These stores, I think they're going to be an important part of the history of our, yep. of our community. Yeah, thanks for coming down. It's been cool. And uh, I'm glad we didn't spend an hour on graphing calculator. Yeah, yeah, would have, it would have been a disappointment. <laughs> yeah, I know. know. It's 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 right to be a legendary story, though. Yeah. Um, well, and I want to thank Omni once again for providing our space here. And uh, it's a beautiful day. Let's go and enjoy the yeah, sunshine. Yeah, it's time to call it done. Mm-hmm. It's done. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thank you.